Well, good morning. And uh, if you're uh, just joining us, we're delighted to have you here. It's a joy for me to uh, see you all together. Um, Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Mark chapter 10. We're beginning in verse uh, 32. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us both in the person of your Son and uh, through the centuries, uh, through your word. And so now we acknowledge that we need your help, the help of your Spirit to be receptive, as well as to understand and further to act on what we hear. We ask for these gifts through Christ our Lord. Amen. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You may take your seats.
Well, if you're just joining us this morning and haven't heard the sermons from chapter 8 and on, you're, you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. So let me just recap. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And as he goes, he's teaching what it means to follow him. Now, for the third and final time, Jesus tells his followers that he will die. And here, uh, in what we've just read, is the clearest statement from Jesus about his mission. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus serves us by doing what we can't do for ourselves. Now, Jesus is leading the way. Jesus is traveling from Judah through, uh, the, from the south in Palestine, northeast, up to Jerusalem. And he'll pass through Jericho on the way to reach the city. And Jesus is walking ahead of them. He has been clear that he knows he's walking uh, to his suffering and his own death. But he's not uh, lagging like a prisoner that has to be uh, poked and prodded to get to the gallows. No, he is purposeful. He set his face uh, to go to Jerusalem. Uh, He uh, knows it uh, is going to be for him a place of terrible suffering. And the disciples, Mark tells us, are experiencing, well, a mixture of emotions. On the one hand, they are astonished that Jesus is moving towards such uh, danger. And on the other hand, they're afraid of what's about to unfold. And Jesus, instead of, well, reducing their fears, uh, comforting them in some way, uh, he speaks about his upcoming uh, death. And he says he will be handed over, meaning betrayed, to the Jewish authorities who will condemn him to death and ask the Romans to have him crucified. And as would be expected, he will be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. Now, this is a specific fulfillment of the words of Isaiah that he spoke about the suffering servant. He writes, I will give my back. These are the words of the servant. I will give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace or spitting. That's the f- chapter 50. But sometime later, we're not told how much time has passed, James and John approach Jesus and they ask for a blank check. Jesus, give us whatever it is uh, we ask. And Jesus says, well, what do you want? Well, we want to sit uh, at your left and right hand when you come into your glory. In other words, they want the place of honor, a place of preeminence, a place uh, of proximity. They want to be close to Jesus. They want to share his power. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism which I'm going to be baptized uh, with? The cup and the baptism are expressions from the Old Testament that are loaded with meaning. 
They're both pictures of suffering, and they carry the thought of something that's coming from the hand of God himself. The cup is the cup of God's wrath, a bitter cup it is indeed. And the baptism is an image of being overwhelmed by disaster and danger. Jesus is using these metaphors, these word pictures, to speak of his suffering of death, which is ordained by God, that they're central and essential to his mission. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus' words are rooted in the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, once again speaking of the uh, suffering servant. Jesus knew that he was this individual, and at the end of chapter 53, these words are described this way, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of his the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, makes many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom. And that uh, word in that day was the word used to describe purchasing uh, a a condemned uh, man or uh, setting a prisoner uh, of war free or purchasing the freedom of a slave. And here the word refers to Jesus' atoning death. He will drink the cup of God's uh, wrath, which we deserve. It's through... His giving of this ransom that we are able to have uh, life. Now, Jesus is freely, purposefully, obediently offering his life as a substitute. It's by this act that many will be freed uh, from a slavery that they might serve the living God. His sacrifice is a sacrifice of obedience to God. It's an expression of his love, and it is a full satisfaction of God's uh, justice. Only love can make sense of this. You see, it's not necessary for Jesus to die because God is vengeful, and he demands blood be spilt, like the gods in the Iliad and the Odyssey. No, real love for another person suffers the way parents do for their children, the way spouses do uh, for each other. Not just because they're inconvenienced by them, but they give up their freedom in bearing with the failures and selfishness of the other. Why is this necessary at all? Well, when a father uh, sees something destroying uh, his child, he's angry. That's how his love expresses his anger at that which is destroying the life of his child. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, the love that made the worlds persists as the artist's love of his work, as a father's love for his sons. 
When we mistreat people, when we use them, when we fail to love them as ourselves, we are in fact destroying them. All those things uh, commanded in the Ten uh, Commandments, uh, like dishonoring your parents and lust and lying and murder, they are uh, uh, ways in which people destroy God's creation. And this reaches its climax, its apex, when we decide that our own bodies and souls are ours to do with whatever we want. It's like a child who tells their parent, I'm going to take the car out uh, for a spin. They're only seven years old. They can't drive a car. They're going to drive to their destruction. And we've done this. We have declared our independence uh, from God. We've decided that we can drive the family car and refuse to be creatures who need to live our lives in submission to the revealed purposes and will of the Creator. And because of this, what we're doing is we're defacing his artwork. And he's angry because we're destroying those he's made, including ourselves. Jesus steps in and drinks down all that anger. And if you don't understand the wrath of God, then you will not understand the love of God. You'll never know the love of Jesus in a way that actually changes you. We need to be ransomed because we are slaves to this impulse to live independently of God, to go our own way, to insist that we can decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, what's true and false, what's good and what's evil. We're enslaved to our independence, to our self-determination, and our prideful insistence that this is in fact what it means to be human. Have you seen uh, to the bottom of your choices to see how it is that in fact you're enslaved, how it diminishes others, how it's destroying even your own life? Will you turn to Jesus and what he has done James and John are hoping to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. Think about that. (laughs) Hoping to honor Jesus while they honor themselves. They're asking for glory, and Jesus is talking to them about suffering. And so Jesus teaches them about the way, about what it means to follow him. Now, they are very confident that they can follow Jesus and drink the same cup as he does. Uh, But they don't know what they're really talking about. But Jesus, instead of, well, uh, uh, being harsh with them in the way he corrects them, uh, he's very patient and he instructs them. And he says, well, you will drink this cup I, I drink. And what he's referring to is that in a lesser sense, they too will suffer, not in a redemptive uh, way, uh, but uh, John, uh, him, uh, excuse me, James himself will be among the very first martyrs in the life of the church, and John uh, himself will, in his old age, in his 90s, 
be exiled uh, to a, a, a prison island where he will quarry rocks. I have to add this, and if you've read the gospel, you might realize this. There's no other place in the gospel anybody said to be on the right hand and left hand of anybody except the two criminals that are crucified next to Jesus. Jesus is teaching them that discipleship involves cross-bearing. In fact, that's the point that Jesus makes so bluntly when uh, he uh, commends Peter for his correct identification of who he is as the Messiah and then tells him that he's going to go uh, die. The disciples do not understand Jesus' uh, uh, mission. And the other disciples are upset with James and John because they got there first. They want exactly the same thing that they ask for. They all want to be great. They all want to be honored. They all want power. And so Jesus explains that greatness in his kingdom is very unlike what they imagine. Leadership in the ancient uh, world was an art form, and it was characterized by dominance, authority over others, the effective use of power and position. And if you want to see something like that, you look at North Korea, Iran, or China, and you, you see something of what leadership looked like in that day. And Jesus rejects this entirely. The way of greatness is service. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. A slave is inferior to a servant. He was the last and least of all people in a household. These aren't just principles about life in the kingdom of God. This is the very pattern of the life of Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He died a slave's death. But it's not just the plan for Jesus' life. It's not just how Jesus fulfills his ministry. It is the plan for everyone who follows Christ. This, these images of slave and servant are meant to stir our imaginations about how we relate to others and what we should expect in life as a follower of Christ. It utterly defies the logic of this world's values, its fascination with dominance and control and results and outcome and celebrity. And it has implications not only for every leader that's in the church, but for everywhere that Christians lead, whether it's in their marriage or their family or at work or at school, or out in the community. The fundamental choice is to be either self-serving or serving others. And the greatest obstacles uh, to being in a servant posture are pride and fear. Fearful leaders have uh, behind their positions, uh, they withhold information, 
Uh, they hide behind their positions. They withhold information. Uh, they intimidate others. They demand obedience, conformity, uh, and they discourage honest uh, feedback. When I say they hide, I mean they don't relate to other people as people. And prideful leaders promote themselves. They take too much credit. They show off. They dominate conversations. They have to have the last word. They have to be right. They demand attention. Self-serving leaders are found everywhere. And servant leaders are all too rare, even in the church. Tim Gombas, who teaches New Testament, uh, tells a story to, to capture uh, what it is that Jesus is getting at. He describes a ministry leader named uh, Ken. And uh, Ken was a lay leader. Uh, he had a very successful uh, business, and he engaged naturally with executives and other business uh, people at church. At the same time, he took the initiative to develop relationships with people who were from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different ethnicities. Um, once he uh, met a young man in the congregation who was new in town and uh, who was visiting and he uh, invited him for breakfast. And he said, let's just get together and talk each week about the challenges and opportunities that life affords. One of those mornings, that young man did not show up, and so Kenneth called him a few times, but no one answered the phone, and so he went to his apartment and knocked on the door. And Ken, Ken uh, uh, surprised this young man. He, Ken explained just how much their relationship uh, meant to him, and they had a very uh, short breakfast that morning. It was months later that this man's girlfriend told uh, Ken that that morning he was unusually discouraged and he expected that Ken would blow him off the way so many other people had blown him off in the past. But Ken's pursuit of this uh, man changed the way he related to people in the life of the church and he began uh, to get to know others and become part of its life. The last scene in this text, Jesus enters Jericho. It's 20 miles from Jerusalem. And on the way out of the town, where many pilgrims would uh, walk and others to do business in the city, there was a blind beggar. He was a fixture there. He knew it was a good place to sit by the road. And he had his cloak open the way a street musician opens up his instrument case hoping that someone would throw some money in. And it's a very unusual moment in the gospel. Mark, you'd have to read the gospel through several times to notice this. But there are only two healings in the second half of Mark's gospel. And Bartimaeus is the only person named who was healed. He's the only healed person in the gospel whose name we're told. And he's the only other person whose eyesight is restored. The last person, the first person we met in chapter 8, and this was a two-stage healing, and the man not only got his sight back, but his healing was uh, filled with spiritual significance. It was symbolic of something, and that's true for Bartimaeus as well. 
You see, Bartimaeus is a marginalized person. He's utterly dependent on other people to live. But he sees what the others do not. That Jesus is the son of David. And he cries out. He cries out for mercy. And people tell him, shush, shush. The master can't be bothered with you. But he is persistent in his cries. And Jesus uh, calls to him. And he asks him exactly the same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And with faith, he asks for his sight to be restored. You see, James and John want glory, and he just wants health. James and John are seeking honor, and he asks for mercy. To Jesus, Bartimaeus is not a problem to be dealt with or pushed aside. He's someone whom he stops and listens to. And if you're here and you're an outsider to Christianity, we are honored that you're with us today. And this should give you hope that Jesus notices you. He will hear you if you cry uh, to him uh, for mercy. Uh, He welcomes this poor man, this man who's at the margins of society, this man who can't do anything for himself. Then Jesus says to him, go your way. In other words, return to your life now that you can see. And what he does instead is he throws away his cloak. He throws away his old life and he follows Jesus on the way. In all of Mark's gospel, We've never found a disciple who would follow Jesus in the way. And now we have one. It's Bartimaeus. He is the ideal follower of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is not for the well-intended. It's for the desperate. Bartimaeus is desperate, and his desperation opens the door of faith to him. And true faith leads to discipleship. Faith that doesn't lead to discipleship is no faith at all. Are you desperate? You have but to call on him. Do you have faith? Well, let me tell you what that means. There are three implications I want to close with this morning. There's no room for a follower to be complacent and apathetic. You see, this text challenges a simplistic, self-centered understanding of what it means to be a disciple. To follow Jesus, your world will get rocked. It will be disruptive. It will be costly. And you will suffer. It will cross your desires. Jesus will confront your natural way of thinking. He will challenge you in the place where you are shaped uh, by the world around you. He will challenge you to live in a way that's different than other people and even to experience their scorn. 
Will you follow in the way? Jesus challenges the most basic assumptions uh, that are in our culture. They're just as much in our time as they were in his. Last week we saw that Jesus challenges our idea of the advantages of wealth. And here he challenges our ideas about greatness. We know what people think of as great in the world. But brothers and sisters, it's often that's in fact the same thing the church celebrates in its people. We have a celebrity culture in much of the church. We measure the value and worth of people by the size of the audience they attract, the influence that they have. Are they published? Do people listen to their words on the internet? Do they have a large uh, congregation? That's how we measure greatness. In its deepest level, Jesus exposes our inner motives here, that we're seeking our own glory instead of the glory of God. The economy of God's kingdom is not based on power and control but on service and in giving. It was the way of the life of Jesus. It is the way each of us is called to individually. And it is the way that the church must operate. Will you follow in the way? And lastly, this has enormous implications as we live in a time in our culture that's so disordered and so confused and increasingly dark. We want to influence uh, uh, our culture. We want to influence the direction of our uh, nature. We want to have an impact, but it will not come by seizing the reins of power. It will not come by engaging in real politic in power politics. No, it'll come as we get involved in the community, as we roll up our sleeves and find a place to serve, as we seek some way to make life better for other people. It might be a neighbor. It might be someone you don't know. It almost certainly needs to be somebody who who doesn't share your values. Jeremiah commands the exiles in the land of their conquerors to pray for the good of the city that God has placed you in, to seek its welfare. Will you follow in the way? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Will you follow in the way? If you've never said yes to Christ and you feel the Spirit tugging at you, then say yes to him today. As we come to this table in just a moment, don't come to the table, but come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear your summons. And Lord we say as well as we can, we will follow in the way. Meet us in our weakness 
encourage us as we seek in, in ways small and for us great, in the ordinariness of our lives, to serve you and to follow you in the way of the cross. It's in your name we pray.